Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Another week and another biblical passage awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. This week, we're going to continue looking in on the famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee that came to visit the Lord late on a Jerusalem night. And in our last podcast, we saw how Nicodemus was a devout and religious Pharisee. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest governing body of the Jews in Jerusalem. So he carried some uh, significant religious authority and influence as well as political influence. He was indeed then a prominent Jew amongst his people. Uh, You could say that Nicodemus had won the birth lottery. Being born a Jew, the chosen people of God, that's bonanza number one, and then a prominent Jew at that, one who had a lot of influence amongst them. So... Then comes Jesus Christ and the onset of his public ministry. And he was starting to perform miracles and signs, and he's mesmerizing crowds with his intriguing teaching. And the Jewish leaders are asking themselves, who who is he? How are we supposed to receive him? Where did he come from? And it didn't take long, however, for the majority of the Pharisees to quickly become antagonistic toward Jesus and his ministry. Here, Jesus was in the chapter before John, chapter 3, where the conversation is, uh, does occur. We saw Jesus cleansing the temple, uh, at the temple with the cleansing of the merchants and tossing them out, saying, you're making this into a den of thieves and merchants and merchandise and so forth. And, and then he claims that his body was the temple, which was highly controversial. So the Pharisees were really uh, not sure what to do with him. And so here comes Nicodemus in John chapter 3, this Pharisee who seeks out Jesus at night to ask him some questions and perhaps maybe offer some PR advice, some, you know, public relations here for Jesus as he's dealing with these religious leaders. Nicodemus is drawn to Jesus. We can see that. He's curious in the way he asks his questions and listens. Uh, He's even open, perhaps, to what Jesus has to say. But we realize he's not coming because he feels he lacks anything or has a spiritual need. No, Nicodemus is just fine on that account. Yep, he is good to go in that department, or so he thought. Now, remember last week also I offered a statement for us to think upon, and here's what it is. The one thing that will keep a lot of people from entering God's heaven is the very thing they are relying upon to get there. So that's a principle that we're going to see Nicodemus will illustrate nicely for us. Now, the item that we're talking about that we cling to is our religion. And by religion, we mean a system, a ritualistic system or a system of works and rituals, traditions, heritage, sacraments, all stuff that we do designed to gain us and help us enter into heaven. But there's one problem. Religion offers no guarantees. 
only produces a hope-so status. A, well, I'm pretty sure, but not a risk-free, ironclad, absolute guarantee of eternal life. And the reason it doesn't really work is because the ultimate guarantee is you. You have to prove it. You have to earn it. You have to stay with it and be consistent and be good and work hard and, be, and maintain what you've accomplished. And therefore, you can never know for sure. You never know because how consistent will you always be, etc. So we are the weakest link and we know it. So we then can double down and work harder or maybe we just try not to think about it and drown ourselves in distractions, our jobs, careers, or hobbies, or substances, or sex, or wealth, or material things. Nicodemus will see he is steeped in religion. He's a fine, upstanding Jew. They are the chosen people. They've been given the covenants and the law and the prophets and the temple and the Torah and so on. And Nicodemus, he's a leader in this system. So he's very comfortable in it all in his own mind. And then in this conversation, conversation with Jesus, Jesus instantly upsets that apple cart. In John chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, where this conversation begins, we read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs rather, that you do unless God is with him. So he comes to Jesus alone at night, and he says, Rabbi, which we saw was a title of respect and honor. So he's recognizing some legitimacy to Jesus. And he says, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why the we? Why this plural pronoun? So who are the we? And who is he speaking on behalf of? And the answer has to be the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a loyal Pharisee, and he's clinging and holding to the system of this religion It's his identity. It's his basis of confidence. And this pronoun, plural, personal pronoun, we, suggests how he's hoping to help bring Jesus and the Jewish leaders together. And we saw last time how Jesus answered and said to him, Hey, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes, Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue similar to the rich young ruler that we looked at a few weeks back when he came to Jesus. And Jesus went right to what he was trusting. Here, though, Jesus addresses what Nicodemus' confidence in, and here the case is it's his birth. Therefore, connected to his birth, his religion. And Jesus answers in the first person, you, Nicodemus, you personally. And here Jesus is getting all radical here on Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, are you kidding me? My birth? I have to be born again? That's the one thing I got going for me. Jesus reiterates, the kingdom is not entered by religion, is what he's saying, but by rebirth, being born again. And that's why Nicodemus is going to basically ask how in John 3, 4, and 6. And Jesus gives him uh, the answer when he explains this, when he he says, uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born of water, he's referring to a physical flesh, being born out from water and being born out from the spirit, a spiritual source. Two births, Nicodemus. A physical one, you've already had that. I'm speaking of a spiritual birth that is on a different dimension altogether. 
And so Jesus repeats this by giving an illustration of the wind. You see the wind, you don't know where it comes from or goes. And he's saying this is like the spiritual dimension here, the spiritual birth. And we left last time where Nicodemus is saying, how? How can I be born again? How does this happen? And Jesus is going to answer him and tell him exactly how. But first he rebukes him. And we saw that the beginning of this last time, and we begin now in John chapter 3 and verse 10. After Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? So he starts with a compliment, the teacher of Israel, and then a rebuke. And yet you're ignorant? Boy, we saw how we can be blind to real truths and just miss them completely in the spiritual realm. If you recall, we ended last time in Isaiah 55, how God has his thoughts which are different than our thoughts and his ways which are different than our ways. In fact, they're higher than our ways, superior to our ways. So we totally need to have the posture of saying, okay, God, you tell me your thoughts and ways. I want to know. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 11 and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. So Jesus now is using those personal pronouns as well. First, he says, most assuredly, which means he speaks with authority, real authority, where we get this whole notion, what what we're looking for, assurance. That means he's going to cut away the unnecessary when he speaks with this authority and expose the fraudulent. We have to be ready for that, too. Like Nicodemus was going to be peppered with, wow, this is not what he was expecting to hear. So Jesus is now using these first-person plural pronouns. We speak, we know, we testify, we have uh, have seen. And all of this he's saying is all this spoken and testify and things, it's all done publicly and objectively. We have done this, he says. And who's the we, Jesus? Well, most likely this is referring to the Godhead, the Trinity. We, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now, you could also take it as Jesus and the disciples, but the disciples are not part of this conversation, and they're nowhere seen in this whole uh, context at all. So Jesus is saying, here's my tribe, here's my club, here's my group, and I'm speaking for my group, my identity. We, God is saying, we speak, we know, we testify, and you don't receive. This time the you is plural. You, Nicodemus, and those whom you are speaking on behalf of. You, Nicodemus, and the Pharisees. You guys, your group, your tribe, your identity. You don't receive what we're saying. You see, truth is not always pretty, and we do tend to want to suppress it when it's inconvenient. In fact, let's test this out. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, we read, There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Hmm. Psalm 51.5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. There's a problem we all have right with our birth, and David was a Jew. Nicodemus should remember that. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's going to write, There is none righteous, no, not one. None of us can stand before God in a righteous, holy aspect. Not one because there's not a just man upon earth who does good and does not sin. So therefore, before a perfect, sinless, and holy God, every one of us stand as less than that. In fact, as sinners 
and before him were guilty. So how are you doing receiving these earthly things, these truths that Jesus, or we find in the Bible that are true of all of us? Are we receiving it? These are his words and his ways, and they're showing us our problem as we stand before a perfect God. And Jesus' conversation, we see how Nicodemus does not react. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't pout. He just absorbs what Jesus is saying. And that is a very good response. Just hear it, be slow to speak, and take it in and ponder it. And then Jesus continues. After he challenges Nicodemus and, and, and about uh, being the teacher of the Jews and not knowing these things and, and so forth, uh, he then reveals to him heavenly things, namely how. How can one be born again from on high? In verse 13, he begins, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven, So he begins by explaining why he can speak with authority and say most assuredly. And he is the son of man who has come down from heaven. This is a major truth Jesus is laying down on Nicodemus here. Along with the we part in the verse earlier, we speak, we are, being the Trinity. Jesus is not a mere teacher who's come from God, like Nicodemus asserts in verse 2. No, he is God come down from heaven. Had Nicodemus reacted to Jesus here in his rebuke and argued with him or stormed out, he would not be hearing this additional revelation and vital truth now. Because now Jesus gets more specific after elaborating who he is, how he came down from heaven. Verse 14, he refers to a story in the Old Testament about Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. And this is how Jesus is going to answer the how. He's going to use an Old Testament event that Nicodemus would surely be aware of, and he's going to use the scriptures and then apply them directly to himself. The account is found in Numbers, chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. It's when the children of Israel were in their days of wandering in the wilderness, and they had a tendency to complain, and here they were complaining again. In fact, specifically even complaining about the manna, the supernatural gift of God provided for them daily. And so in Numbers chapter 21 and verses 5 through 9, we, in verse 6, we would read then how the Lord, he sent consequences for this rebellion. And there was a fiery serpent, a particular sand snake uh, found in the desert that had a deadly bite. And these snakes, there must have been a multitude of them, and they began biting and afflicting the Israelites, and many were getting, most were getting sick, and many were dying. So verse 7, the people come to Moses and they say, Moses, we admit we have sinned. We were complaining against the Lord. Please intercede for us. We need relief. In verse 8, Moses does so and the Lord sends relief in a most unusual way. He tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it around a pole and have the people look at that serpent on the pole and they will live. A physical remedy for a physical problem. They're being bit by serpents and they are dying. So by looking at this serpent on a pole, they will survive or live physically. And all they had to do was look. Some commentators even like to play this up, like they had to drag themselves toward the pole and stare at it relentlessly or even begging for help or any of those things. Nope, none of that's in the text. Just look 
and live. And so in verse 9 in the story of Numbers 21, Moses does so. He puts a brazen serpent on a pole, and they looked, and they survived physically. And this symbol of a serpent on a pole has become a modern, a great symbol for medicine and the healing arts. Uh, it's, it's called a, a, a caduceus, if you've seen that, that serpent on a pole. Well, remember, Jesus earlier in this conversation with Nicodemus says, Now I have told you earthly things. And then this is it right here, this earthly people's sins and their guilt and so forth. So hopefully can we, we can recognize that because now Jesus is going to go and tell him heavenly things. He says in John chapter 3, verse 14, he tells Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just like that story we just went over, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he just identified himself as the Son of Man who's come down from heaven. So he comes down to be lifted up. And that verb is in the passive voice. Someone will, someone else will lift him up on a pole, just like the brown serpent. And this time, it's for spiritual reasons, spiritual things, heavenly things. Jesus will be lifted up on a pole or a cross and will become associated with sin. The emblem for, emblem for sin is that snake, and the cross becomes that emblem for spiritual truth, and you will be saved spiritually. So finally we see the direct now how. John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, that, for the purpose that, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the how. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Physically, earthly things, look at the serpent and live physically if you were bit by the snake in the wilderness. Spiritually, heavenly things, the, the, the illustration points to, if you believe, have faith in Jesus Christ, you will live spiritually eternal life. Eternal life. The how is to believe in him who has died for you as your substitute on the cross for your sins so that you can believe. And therefore, live, have life forgiven, cleansed, and born again. You will not perish. It's a stated fact. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. You will not perish. Fact. You will have eternal life. Fact. Guaranteed. You simply need to believe, which is to be persuaded so that you will trust in these earthly things, that yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you do lack righteousness, standing before a perfect God. And then you can go on beyond that and believe Jesus about the heavenly things, the spiritual things, how there's new life available in him freely by faith and his being lifted up for you. That's the remedy. These are God's thoughts and his ways presented directly to us. You see, our ways, man, if we were in that desert, we would organize a meeting <clears throat> and discuss the problem of fiery serpents. We would start an association of citizens against fiery serpents, tell people they must have tears or remorse, have beg for mercy and bring God's sacrifices of jewelry and chickens and pray all night for relief and promise to do better and then cry some more. And then and only then, maybe God will intervene and you, and you can hope. That's religion. 
That's our approach. But what's God's ways? He's going to provide an innocent and perfect substitute for the guilty sinner. That innocent substitute will come down from heaven. He is holy and give himself on our behalf, the just for the unjust. And when we simply put our faith and confidence in him who loved us and died for us, he's our solution. And the remedy is we will be saved. We will not perish, but have eternal life. So the conversation in John chapter 3 then with Nicodemus and Jesus actually ends here at verse 15. The story, the account goes on, but what follows in verse 16 and beyond is John, the apostle, the writer, writing later and filling in some commentary and detail on that conversation. So this is where the conversation ends. But in John chapter 3, 16, we see the most famous verse of the whole Bible now is a, is, is, is a commentary on what Nicodemus and Jesus talked about. John 3, 16 through verse 21 starts this narrative by the writer of John. And what we read in verse 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, it's intriguing, it's wonderful, is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What great words that are refined in here. Words like loved or gave or not perish or life. You know, there's five couplets of words. We're just going to quick go over them. And each, the second, follows or flows out of the first. The first couplet is God and Son. God is the giver. Son is the gift that is given. The second couplet is loved and gave. You see, love, that's the stated uh, uh, statement that God loves. And then gave is the demonstration of that love, the proof of it. Then we see the third couplet, world and whoever. You see, world is all in general. God loves all in general, but whoever is you and me, us in particular, believes and has is the fourth couplet. Believes is the hand of faith, the receiving hand. Has is the gift that's given and put into it. It's our personal possession. And what is it that we have? Not perish, but life. The last couplet, perish in life, that's the issue. We don't want to perish. Instead, we have life. His thoughts, his ways, heavenly things to be believed, to be persuaded of, to rely on. And so, to illustrate this is what God is guaranteeing and giving to us. Let me say to the podcast listeners listening that I give you this certain link on the internet here in a second, and uh, there you go and you take a survey. It's a it's it's forty questions, and if you take that, I'm going to send you ten thousand dollars a check in the mail. Okay, so here's the website. Da da da. Pretend, and you go and you fill out the survey. It only takes you 20 minutes, and you're expecting 10 grand. Yes, I'm going to get $10,000. In fact, you're so sure that it's coming, you go out and buy all new furniture and charge it on your charge card. Or you go out and make a down payment on a new car because uh, you think this money's coming in. You believed. You were persuaded. You assumed it as solid and reliable. But the check never comes. The problem? It's not your faith. You had faith. The problem is the object of your faith wasn't a good object. It was me. So what's my point? Well, the point is, as a promise is only as good as the person making the promise. So back in John 3, 16, this is definitely, definitely the language of a promise. There's a promise here. 
believe on him, whoever believes on him will never perish but have eternal life. There's a condition and then a promise and a guarantee. So who's making that promise? God. Can you trust that to be a reliable source? Is God reliable? Is he a solid object? Will he not then guarantee his promise? In fact, Titus 1-2 reminds us, God who cannot lie. So he's nothing but reliable truth. And so God makes this promise. I encourage you, take him up on that promise. Believe on him who died for you, and you will not perish but have eternal life. Look and live. That's so simple in the desert. It physically explains their physical solution. And here it's turned into believe and you will not perish but have eternal life, the spiritual solution. So how do we have that life? It's by faith. You simply take God at his word. Do you not know that he loves you? Jesus did come down. He came from heaven, and he did die on a cross, and he died for you, paying for your sin and allowing you to be made righteous and to have life if you believe and you have trust in his name. You will never perish but have eternal life. This is a guarantee. This works. This is not religion. This is not a system. This is not based on what you do. It's what he did. And this relies then on Jesus Christ's goodness and his performance and his work and his consistency. It's all based on him. And guess what? If he's going to do all the work, he's going to get all the glory too. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Grace means undeserved. This is not something we earn or deserve. This is free. And we have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The salvation's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, it never can be based on something we did, or we would have a reason or a right to boast in heaven. Hey, I'm here because Jesus did 90%, but hey, you should have seen what I did. Nope. Lest anyone should boast. It's all Christ. It's all his credit. It's based entirely on him, and that's why God can guarantee it. And that's why you can have that assurance. So back in John chapter 3, verse 17 and through 19, just a couple more verses on this uh, that John writes his commentary on. He reminds us after saying, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God is not about being mad at you, throwing lightning bolts at you and condemning you. No, he so loved the world, he wants all to be saved. Jesus, we remember in the story of Zacchaeus, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Verse 18 goes on to say, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, that's the only issue. Have you believed? It's not your lifestyle. It's not how many sins there are. And it's not your religion either. Just do you believe? Have you trusted in Christ? And are you trusting in your eternal destiny upon him alone? Then you will not be condemned. You have life. And that's hard for us in our pride. That's why verse 19 says, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, we like to cling to our darkness and our, our own interpretation or our own plan or our own way we think it should work. Not these words of truth coming from God's ways. So we might kick and fight and insult against this, be offended. 
Nicodemus, he did that. He didn't do that, though. He just listened and heard this and thought about it. He didn't clutch to that darkness. The one thing that will keep a lot of people from entering God's heaven is the very thing they're relying upon to get there. So don't rely on your religion or your works. Can I illustrate? Like to catch a monkey in, the, in, in, in India, when they want to catch a monkey, what they'll do is they'll make a web or a basket like a trap <clears throat> that they can see into, but it has a very small hole on the top, and they'll put an orange or some bright, shiny object in there, and the monkey will see that and want that, and he'll put his hand down in there and grab a hold of the object and then want to pull it out, but they can't get, their, they can't get it out. It won't fit. The object is too big. So all you have to do is drop the object and pull your hand out and run away. But they won't do it. They'll keep trying. They'll keep trying to get that object out, and they'll keep trying until someone comes and traps them and cap- makes them captive. And all you'd have to do is let it go. <laughs> let go of that thing that you think is going to be so important and vital to you. And if you let go of that, then God can take you and love you and wash you and regenerate you, and you'll be born again by faith in him. Our story's not quite over, though. We have a few more things to see here about Nicodemus. What happened to him? We'll find him two more times in the text of John. The first one is in John 7, verse 37. He's uh, After feast, he made one of his uh, big public declarations, and he ends it by saying, on the last day of that great of uh, feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So he makes this offer. And then we read there's some verses of controversy in John 7, 43. A few verses later, we read there was a division among the people because of him. Who is he? What do we do with him? And then we'll see there was a rejection by the leaders. A few verses later, John 7, 45, uh, they had the officers go to arrest him. When the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to him, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. And then the Pharisees answered them, Oh, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? And this crowd that they don't know the law, they are accursed. And so notice the Pharisees, they're so proud and full of themselves. They immediately make fun of the officers who didn't arrest him, saying, Now you as disciples? But notice they also said, None of us have believed in him. Note, they clearly know what the issue is, to believe in him or not. And so to the officers, he says, are you also deceived? To the crowd, they say, they're a bunch of ignorant people. They don't know the law. And what about Nicodemus? Verse 50, Nicodemus, as he's hearing this, and they identify him in John 7 as the one who came to Jesus by night, he said to them, Doesn't our, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? I mean, that's what the law is about. That's what we're supposed to do. And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And so they all insult him too. Are you also deceived? Officers. Crowd? Accursed. Nicodemus? What, are you from Galilee? And by the way, what does that have to do with anything? It's like, huh, what? Is that your argument, really? It's like you just hesitate or say something that's possibly... You know, you know, different, and immediately you're censored. Well, they also say, look, search. No prophet has risen out of Galilee. Okay, Jonah, he was from Gath-Hefer. That's two miles from Nazareth in Galilee. And Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, gives us a, a prophecy 
But there will be a time in the future, Isaiah writes, when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And a few verses later, for unto us a child is born. And that all starts in Galilee. So, okay, the Pharisees apparently know what they're talking about. Maybe not. The next time we see Nicodemus is after the crucifixion and an event uh, that Nicodemus likely observed. Now, much has happened since John chapter 7. The Lord's person and work have become more and more clear. Uh, and then he was illegally arrested and beaten in the trial of Jesus, all against the law of the Jews. And then he could see the religious hatred of Jesus and this total violation of Jewish laws. They treated him in, uh, in unjustly. At the crucifixion, you know, when a body is crucified, it's nailed to the cross uh, on the ground. Um, horizontal. Then, as he is raised, that person is raised up and put the cross is put in place. So you're horizontally nailed to the cross, it's laying flat on the ground, and then that cross gets lifted up. Now imagine Nicodemus standing off in the distance at this event, watching Jesus getting nailed to the cross and then slowly lifted up into position. And Nicodemus sees this, and how he must recall that night conversation he had with Jesus, where Jesus said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that truth comes gushing down upon him. He gets it. He sees it. Jesus is lifted up on the cross for all humanity. What a moment for Nicodemus. We read about Nicodemus then in John 19, right after the crucifixion. He's with another Pharisee named Arimathea, Joseph rather of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus. And he had feared the Jewish leaders, Arimathea, that Joseph did. And he asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night, and he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made of myrrh and from myrrh and aloes. And so they prepared his body for death. Now Nicodemus is ministering to Jesus. This is 75 pounds of spices of great expense and a large quantity, reflecting Nicodemus' great respect for Jesus and most likely his faith in him as well. See, Jesus is now his Savior. Nicodemus had become persuaded, and he's now stepping out publicly, another unpopular move to show now his love for the Lord who had died for him. That's a good illustration even for us in the Christian life. And so wrapping this up, we can learn from Nicodemus, Nick at night. He was willing to ask questions, follow his intrigue. He was willing to hear answers and not react. Instead, he listened and pondered and heard more. And he was willing to let go of the one thing that was keeping him from knowing with certainty that he would enter God's heaven. The very thing he was relying upon to get him there, his religion, his birth, his status, his Mr. Religion status. And he let it go. You know, someone once said, failure is succeeding at something that doesn't matter. So let's not have that kind of failure and succeed at religion. Instead, let's let it go and lay hold of the free gift of eternal life offered through Christ. And then we can have assurance as we wrap up in John, 1 John 5, 13. 11 through 13, John writes in a book much later, this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have 
God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. These things are written that you may know. A guarantee. You see, here's your written guarantee. No church or religion can write out or give you an absolute guarantee. But God can, and he did, and he promised it. Ironclad, for sure, risk-free, guaranteed, eternal life, free, by grace, through faith in Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you and did everything necessary for you to have entrance. And God can guarantee it because it's based on him, Jesus, not us. It's based on his holiness, not ours. His work, not yours. So have you trusted in him alone? Laid hold of eternal life in Christ? Letting go of what you thought might get you in? If not, why not now? You know, Jesus summarized it so clearly in John 6, 47. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Do you have it? I sure hope so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example of Nicodemus, and may we all desire your truth and to be willing and want to ask you questions and to learn your thoughts, your ways. And if any listening here do not know with certainty that they have guaranteed eternal life, Lord, persuade them with your words and the truth of the gospel that we've heard of Christ. May they see that it's not based on their works or what they do for you, but it's based on Christ's work and what he's already done for them. May they believe that today, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And just remember, until next time, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is always hope.